Chapter Thirteen of the Dragon and the Raven by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. The Dragon and the Raven by G. A. Henty. Chapter Thirteen: The Siege of Paris. On the following morning, Edmund, who had returned to his ship to sleep was aroused by loud shouts on deck. Hurrying from his cabin, he saw a vast fleet of ships approaching the mouth of the river. They were all sizes, from great sailing ships to rowing galleys. It needed but a glance at them to assure him that they were the dreaded ships of the Northmen, for the black raven floated at many of the mastheads. From the town the sounds of horns and great shoutings could be heard, showing that there, too, the approaching fleet had just been discerned as the morning fog lifted from the sea. Edmund held a hurried consultation with his kinsmen. It was now too late to gain the sea, for the Danish ships had already reached the mouth of the river. To attempt to escape by fighting would be madness, and they hesitated only whether to run the ship ashore and leave her there, enter the town and share in its defence, or to proceed up the river with all speed to Rouen, or even to Paris. The latter course was decided upon, for the Danish ships would contain so vast a number of men that there was little hope that Havre could resist their attack, nor was it likely that Rouen, which on the previous year had been captured and sacked, would even attempt another resistance, which would only bring massacre and ruin upon its inhabitants. Paris alone, the capital of the Frankish kings, seemed to offer a refuge. The liberation was a short one, and by the time the men had taken their places at the oars, their leaders had decided upon their course. The anchor ropes were cut, for not a moment was to be lost the leading ships of the Danes being already less than half a mile distant. The tide was flowing, and the dragon swept rapidly up the river. Some of the Danish galleys followed for a while, but seeing that the dragon had the speed of them, they abandoned their pursuit, and at a more easy stroke the rowers continued their work until they reached Rouen. Here the tide failed them, and they moored against the bank under the walls. Edmund and Egbert went on shore. They found the city in a state of wild confusion, saying that they had important news and must see the governor. They were led to the council chamber, where the leading men of the town were assembled. After stating who he and his companion were, Edmund announced the arrival of a great Danish fleet at the mouth of the river. "'Your news, sir, is terrible for our poor country,' the governor said. "'But to us it scarce brings any additional horror, although it will probably decide the question which we are engaged in discussing. We have news here that a great Danish army, which landed at Abbeville, is marching hitherward and we are met to discuss whether the town should resist to the last, or should open its gate to their approach. This news you bring of the arrival of a fresh army of these sea-robbers at Havre, renders our case desperate. So fierce is their attack that we could hardly hope successfully to resist the approaching army, but against it and this fleet, you tell us, of resistance would only bring about our utter destruction. That, at least, is my opinion. The other members of the Council must speak for themselves." The other members, who were the principal merchants and traders of the town, were unanimously of the same opinion. "'Better, they said, to give up all our worldly goods to the Northmen, than to be slaughtered piteously with our wives and families.' "'Such being your decision,' Edmund said, "'my kinsman and myself will proceed up the river to Paris. Hitherto, as we hear, the Northmen have not ventured to attack that city, and should they do so it will doubtless resist to the last.' Accordingly, the two Saxons returned at once to the dragon, and as soon as the tide turned, unmoored and proceeded up the river. Three days after leaving Rouen, they arrived in sight of Paris. 
The capital of the Franks was but a small city, and was built entirely upon the island, situated just at the confluence of the Seine and the Marne. It was surrounded by a strong and lofty wall. On the approach of a vessel differing entirely from anything they had before seen, the citizens flocked to the walls. The golden dragon floating at the masthead showed them that the vessel did not belong to the Danes, and some of the more experienced in these matters said at once that she must be a Saxon ship. Count Eudes, who had been left by the king in command of Paris, himself came to the walls just as the dragon came abreast of them. Edmund ordered the rowers to pause at their work. "'Who are you?' the Count Eudes shouted. "'Whence do you come, and with what intent?' "'My name is Edmund. I am an Earl Dorman of King Alfred of the Saxons. When at sea-fighting the Northmen a tempest blew me down their coast, and I took refuge in the port of Havre. Four days since, at daybreak, a vast fleet of Northmen entered the river. We rode up to Rouen, hoping to be able to find safe shelter there, but the citizens, being aware that a great army of the sea-robbers was marching against their town, and being further intimidated by the news I brought them, decided upon surrendering without resistance. Therefore we have continued our journey hither, being assured that here at last the Danish wolves would not have their way unopposed. We have fought them long in our native land, and wish for nothing better than to aid in the effort of the Franks against our common enemy. "'You are welcome, Sir Earl,' the Count Eudes said. "'Though the news you bring us is bad indeed. We have heard how valiantly the thanes of King Alfred have fought against the invaders, and shall be glad indeed of your assistance should the Northmen, as I fear, come hither.' So saying, the Count ordered the gates to be opened, and the dragon, having been moored alongside, Edmund and Egbert with their crew entered the town, where the leaders were received with great honour by the Count. He begged them to become guests at the castle, where quarters were also assigned to the crew. A banquet was at once prepared, at which many of the principal citizens were present. As soon as the demands of hunger were satisfied, the Count made further inquiries as to the size of the fleet which had entered the Seine and as to the army reported to be marching against Rouen. "'I doubt not,' he said, when the Saxons had given him all the particulars in their power, "'that it is the armament of Siegfroy, who has already wrought such destruction. More than once he has appeared before our walls, and has pillaged and ravaged the whole of the north of France. The last time he was here he threatened to return with a force which would suffice to raise Paris to the ground, and doubtless he is coming to endeavour to carry out his threat. But he will not find the task an easy one. We shall resist him to the last. And right glad am I that I shall have the assistance of two of the Saxon thanes who have so often inflicted heavy defeats upon these wolves of the sea. Your vessel is a strange one, and differs from those that I have hitherto seen, either Dane or Saxon. She is a sailing ship, and yet appears to row very fast. She is built, Edmund said, partly upon the design of King Alfred himself which were made from paintings he possessed of the war-galleys of Italy, which country he visited in his youth. They were carried out by a clever shipwright of Exeter, and indeed the ship sails as well as she rows, and, as the Danes have discovered to their cost, is able to fight as well as she can sail and row. Had we been fairly out to sea before the Danish fleet made its appearance, we could have given a good account of ourselves, but we were caught in a trap. I fear that if the Northmen surround the city, your ship will be destroyed. I was thinking of that, Edmund said, and I pray you to let me have some men who know the river higher up. There must assuredly be low shores often overflowed, where there are wide swamps covered with wood and thickets, which the enemy would not enter, seeing that no booty could be obtained there. The ship was built in such a spot, 
and we could cut a narrow gap from the river and float her well in among the trees, so as to be hidden from the sight of any passing up the river in galleys, closing up the cut again so that none might suspect its existence. "'That could be done easily enough,' the Count said. "'There are plenty of spots which would be suitable, for the banks are, for the most part, low, and the ground around swampy and wooded. Tomorrow I will tell off a strong body of men to accompany you in your ship, and aid your crew in their work.' Twenty miles up the Seine a suitable spot was found, and the crew of the Dragon, with the hundred men whom the Count Eudes had lent for the purpose, at once set about their work. They had but little trouble, for a spot was chosen where a sluggish stream, some fifteen feet wide, drained the water from a wide-spreading swamp into the river. The channel needed widening but a little to allow the Dragon entering, and the water was quite deep enough to permit her being taken some three hundred yards back from the river. The trees and underwood were thick, and Edmund was assured that even when winter, which was now approaching, stripped the last leaf from the trees, the dragon could not be seen from the river. Her masts were lowered, and bundles of brushwood were hung along her side, so as to prevent the gleam of black paint being discerned through the trees. The entrance to the stream was filled up to a width of three or four feet, and the new work turfed with coarse grass similar to that which grew beside it. Bushes were planted close to the water's edge, and stakes were driven down in the narrow channel to within a few inches of the surface of the water. Certain now that no Danish boats would be likely to turn aside from the river to enter this channel into the swamp, the party embarked in some boats which had been towed up by the dragon, and returned down the river to Paris. The afternoon before starting all the valuable booty which had been captured from the Danes was landed and placed in security in the castle, and upon his return to Paris Edmund disposed of this at good prices to the traders of the city. A fortnight after they had returned to Paris, the news was brought in that a vast fleet of Northmen was ascending the river. The next morning it was close at hand, and the citizens mounting the walls beheld with consternation the approaching armament. So numerous were the ships that they completely covered the river. The fleet consisted of seven hundred sailing ships and a vastly greater number of rowing galleys and boats. These vessels were crowded with men in their fierce aspect, their glittering arms, and their lofty stature spread terror in the hearts of the citizens. "'This is truly a tremendous host,' the Count Eudes said to Edmunds, who stood beside him on the walls. "'It is indeed,' Edmund replied, "'numerous as are the fleets which have poured down upon the shores of England. Methinks that none approaches this in strength. It is clear that Northmen have united their forces for a great effort against this city, but having at home successfully defended fortifications, which were not to be named in comparison with those of Paris, against them, I see no reason to doubt that we shall be able to beat them off here. The Danes landed on the opposite bank and formed a vast camp there, and the following morning three of their number in a small boat rode across the river, and said that their king, Siegfroy, desired to speak with Goslin, Archbishop of Paris, who stood in the position of civil governor. They were told that the Archbishop would receive the king in his palace. An hour later a stately figure in glittering armour was seen to take his place in a long galley, which rode by twenty men quickly shot across the stream. Siegfroy landed, and, accompanied by four of his leading warriors, entered the gates, which were opened at his approach. The chief of the Northmen was a warrior of lofty stature. On his head he wore a helmet of gold, on whose crest was a raven with extended wings wrought in the same metal. His hair fell loosely on his neck. His face was clean-shaved in the Danish fashion save for a long moustache. He wore a breastplate of golden scales, and carried a shield of the toughest bull's hide, 
studded with gold nails. He was unarmed, save for a long dagger which he wore in his belt. He and his followers, who were all men of immense stature, walked with a proud and assured air between the lines of citizens, who clustered thickly on each side of the street, and who gazed in silence at these dreaded figures. They were escorted by the Chamberlain the Archbishop, and on arriving at his palace were conducted into the chamber, where Goslin, Count Eudes, and several of the leading persons of Paris awaited them. Siegfroy bent his head before the prelate. "'Goslin,' he said, "'I beg you to have compassion upon yourself and your flock if you do not wish to perish. We beseech you to turn a favourable ear to our words. Grant only that we shall march through the city, we will touch nothing in the town, and we undertake to preserve all your property, both yours and that of Eudes.' The archbishop replied at once, "'This city has been confided to us by the Emperor Charles, who is, after God, the king and master of the powers of the earth. Holding under his rule almost all the world, he confided it to us with the assurance that we should suffer no harm to come to the kingdom, but should keep it for him safe and sure. If it had happened that the defence of these walls had been committed to your hands, as it has been committed to mine, what would you have done had such a demand been made upon you? Would you have granted the demand? If I had granted it, Siegfroy replied, Mamma had fallen under the axe and serve as food for dogs. Nevertheless, if you do not grant our demands, by day we will overwhelm your city with our darts and with poisoned arrows by night. You shall suffer all the horrors of hunger, and year after year we will return and make a ruin of your city. Without another word he turned, and, followed by his companions, strode through the streets of Paris, and, taking his place in the boat, returned to his camp. At daybreak the next morning the Norsemen were seen crowding into their ships. The trumpets sounded loudly, and the citizens seized their arms and hastened to the walls. The Norsemen crossed the river and directed their attack against a tower which stood at the head of the bridge connecting the city and island with the farther bank. Those who landed were provided with picks, crowbars, and other implements for effecting a breach, and their approach was protected by a cloud of arrows and javelins from the fleet which covered the surface of the river. The French leaders soon assembled at the threatened point. Chief among these were Eudes, his brother Robert, the Count Ragnar, and the Abbe Ible, a nephew of the Archbishop. The Franks bore themselves bravely, and in spite of the rain of arrows defended the wall against the desperate attack of the Norsemen. The fortifications in those days were very far from having attained the strength and solidity which a few generations later were bestowed upon them. The stones of which they were constructed were comparatively small, and fastened together by mortar, consequently they could ill resist even an assault by manual weapons. Covered by their shields the Northmen worked untiringly at the foundations, and piece by piece the walls crumbled to the ground. Every effort, however, to enter at the breaches so made was repulsed and Siegfroy kept back his warriors, determined to delay the grand assault until the next day. By nightfall the tower was in ruins, scarcely a portion of the walls remained erect. Many of the besieged had been killed. The archbishop was wounded with an arrow. Frederick, a young soldier who led the troops of the church, was killed. The besiegers, unfortunately, had suffered much more severely, great numbers having been killed by the stones and missiles hurled down by the defenders, while engaged in the demolition of the walls. At nightfall the Danes carried off their wounded and recrossed the river, confident that next day they would succeed in their assault. As soon as darkness had set in, Count Eudes collected the citizens, and these, 
bearing beams and planks, crossed the bridge to the tower and set to work. Outside the circle of ruins, holes were dug and the beams securely fixed. Planks were nailed to these and earth heaped up behind them. All night the work continued, and by morning a fortification much higher than the original tower had been erected, all round the ruin. The Danes again crossed the river in their ships, and the assault was renewed. Javelins and great stones were hurled at the fortification, and clouds of arrows from the shipping fell within them. Covered with portable roofs constructed of planks, the Danes strove to destroy the wall. The besieged poured upon them a blazing mixture of oil, wax, and pitch. Numbers of the Danes were burned to death, while others, maddened by the pain, threw themselves into the river. Over and over again Sigfroy led his warriors to the attack, but the defenders, headed by Eudas and the brave Abbe Ebli, each time repelled them. The Abbe particularly distinguished himself, and he is reported to have slain seven Danes at once with one javelin, a blow which may be considered as bordering on the miraculous. But the number of the defenders of the town was small indeed to that of the enemy, and the loss which they inflicted upon the Danes, great as it was, was as nothing in so vast a host. The flames of the machines, lighted by the pitch and oil, communicated to the planks of the fortification, and soon these too were on fire. As they burned, the earth behind them gave way, and a breach was formed. Encouraged by this result, the Danes brought up faggots, and in several places lighted great fires against the fortifications. The defenders began to lose all hope, when a tremendous storm of rain suddenly burst over Paris, quenching the fire. The besieged gained heart, reinforcements crossed from the town, and the Danes again withdrew to their ships, having lost in the day's fighting three hundred men. After this repulse the Northmen desisted for a time from their attack. They formed a strong fortified camp near the church of Saint-Germain, and then spread over the country, slaying and burning, sparing none, man, woman, or child. From the walls of Paris the smoke could be seen rising over the whole country, and every heart was moved with rage and sorrow. Edmund and his party had taken no part in the defence of the tower. Its loss would not have involved that of the town, and Eudes requested him to keep his band in reserve, in order that they might remain intact until the Danes should make a breach in the walls of the city itself, when the sudden reinforcement of a party of such well-trained warriors might decide the result. While a portion of the Danish host were engaged upon the work of devastation, a large number were employed upon the construction of three great towers. These were built on wheels, and were each large enough to hold sixty men. They far overtopped the walls, and the citizens viewed with alarm the time when an assault should be delivered under the protection of these formidable machines. Eighteen ships of equal size were moored by the bank, six deep. Great planks were laid across them, and a sloping platform having been formed, the towers were by the efforts of thousands of men moved up and placed on the ships. "'If we do not destroy those towers, Egbert,' Edmund said one day, as he saw them slowly moving into their position on board the ships, "'all is lost, for from their summits the Northmen, with their bows and javelins, will be able to clear the walls, while those below effect a breach at their leisure.' "'That is true enough, Edmund, but I do not see any way to destroy them. Unfortunately we have no boats, or we might fill some of them with combustibles.' and tow them down until near enough for the stream to carry them upon these vessels, but even then the chance was small indeed, for the Danes would swarm out in their boats and manage to tow or push them so that they would not touch the ships. I should think, Egbert, that if we could get some skins or planks, 
we and our band might, when it was quite dark, sally out and take to the water at the lower end of the island, and float down quietly for a mile or two, and then gain the further bank. Then we might march along quietly until we reach those ships. The Danes know that we have no boats and will not fear an attack. We must not do it until an hour or two before morning, when, after spending the early hours of the night as usual in feasting and drinking, they will sleep heavily. Just before we are ready to begin, a small party can unmoor two or three of the boats by the bank and push them out, one to the outside of each tier of six vessels, so that we may have a means of retreat across the river. When that is done, we will make a rush on board the ships, cut down any Danes we may find there, and set fire to all the vessels. We must hold the gangways to the shore until the flames get well alight, and then take to the boats and return. I think the plan's a good one, Edmund, and may well be carried out without great loss. There are plenty of empty wineskins at present in Paris. I will at once set about collecting a hundred of them. We will fasten to each a stout cord so as to form a loop to go over the head and shoulders, and then we had best attach them all together by one long cord, by which means we shall float in a body. Fortunately, the night is very dark, and I think we shall succeed. Say nothing about it, Egbert, and tell the men to keep silent. The good people of Paris shall know nothing of the matter until they see the flames dancing round the towers, which they hold in so much dread. The Saxons received with satisfaction the news of the intended expedition. They had been disappointed at being kept back from taking any part in the fighting during the two days' attack upon the tower, and longed for an opportunity to inflict a blow upon their hated enemy, the Danes. The wine-skins were fitted up with ropes, as Egbert had suggested, and soon after nightfall the party, armed with spear and sword, and carrying each his float, sallied out from the gates, as Edmund was by this time so well known among the citizens that the gate was opened without demur on his order. They crept along the foot of the wall until they reached the lower extremity of the island. Across the river innumerable fires blazed high, and the songs and shouts of the Danes rose loud in the air. Numbers of figures could be seen moving about or standing near the fires. The tents of the chiefs were visible some distance back, but the number of these as well as of the fires was much less than it had been on the first arrival of the Northmen, owing to the numbers who had gone to the camp round Saint-Germain. The night was very dark, and a light rain was falling. Before taking to the water, Edmund bade his men strip off the greater portion of their clothes, and fasten them in a bundle on their heads as it would be some time after they landed before they could advance upon the camp, and the cold and dripping garments would tend to lessen their spirits and courage. When all was ready they stepped into the river, and keeping in a body drifted down the stream. The wine-skins floated them well above the water, the stream was running strong, and the lights of the Danish fires were soon left behind. In half an hour Edmund and Egbert deemed that they were now far beyond a point where they might chance upon any Danish stragglers. The word was therefore given, and all made for the bank. The stream had already drifted them in that direction, and they soon reached the shore. Here the skins which had proved so useful were left behind, and putting on their dry clothes they felt comparatively comfortable. Edmund ordered them to lay down their spears and swords by their sides, and to swing their arms violently. This they continued to do until they were nearly breathless, by which time the blood was coursing warmly in their veins. They were now in December, and the water was extremely cold, and Egbert congratulated Edmund upon having made the men strip, for had they been compelled to remain in their wet garments while waiting for the Danish fires to die down, they would scarce have been in a fit state to fight when the moment for so doing had arrived. Three hours elapsed before the glare of the distant fires began to subside. Another half-hour passed, 
and then the band was formed up and moved along on the bank of the river. End of chapter 13. Recording by Mike Harris.